So as we've talked about today in our teachings, obsession or papancha, one of the ways that we talked about obsession of the mind comes from these, tends to come in three areas of the craving, conceit, and views, or as I said, wanting self and opinions. And they, and they can be mixed together, of course. Um, so there's that specific kind of source for them. And then more generally, we heard at the very beginning that what the mind tends to get obsessed with um, are particularly the hindrances with various speculations about our life, or specifically this world and the other world, um, as it said in the sutta, or else with argumentation. You know, we have um, something that we're irritated with someone about, and so we want to build up our argument for that. So this is not only an individual issue. Um, in MN18, a different sutta than I was talking about before, it's called the Honeyball Sutta. It talks about how this process of mental proliferation or getting obsessed, you know, that whole realm of mental activity leads to problems in the wider community. It talks about actually specifically the psychological process that happens there. So it's possible actually for papancha or proliferation to lead all the way to violence. And specifically this sutta says that when we've gotten caught up in something, it, it leads to resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malicious words, and false speech. That's pretty serious. But if we look, it doesn't mean every time it happens, it will lead to that. But if we look at instances where that's what's going on, and there's plenty of that in the world, it usually has to do with somebody got caught up in something and got really wrapped up in it to the point where they were willing to do those things. So we can start to feel a little bit of respect for this mental process as something quite serious that we should watch. Even if our mind is not quite going that far each time, we have in our heart the seeds for those things if we have papancha. So the sutta gives a detailed analysis of the psychological process that leads from perception to thinking to proliferation of that thinking to violence. And luckily it also um, says something about how to get out of this unhappy chain of events. And you might not be surprised to learn that the way out is not to, as it says in the sutta, delight in our thoughts and ideas, or we could say not to get obsessed with our views, opinions, desires, and self, because um, it's a slippery slope. It can go quite far. So, this half day was called inner strength. And I chose that on purpose because, uh, and I pointed out, of course, at the beginning that there is some weakness, right? Associated with our mind can be overwhelmed by thoughts and feelings. Something is um, not strong enough somehow to hold on while these waves come in. So it's not a personal failing. I probably can't say that too many times. It's not a personal failing, but it's simply a need or an opportunity for uh, additional practice. And I'll join all of you right along with that in um, still having a tendency to 
proliferation of thought. So um, you may have noticed now that we've had some experience over the course of practicing this afternoon, you may have noticed that as practice progressed, your mind did get less caught up, maybe a little bit more settled and less tendency to get drawn in by these various thought trails that come and tempt us and look very interesting to get wrapped up in. Maybe sometimes those thoughts didn't even make it to the surface. You know, you had periods of sitting where essentially um, thoughts weren't arising, even if it was just for five seconds, but then maybe later it was for 10 or 15 seconds, something. Um, this is a kind of strength. You know, concentration does help. You can stop obsessing in the moment through gathering the mind in this, through the simple practices that we did, paying attention to the breath, resting in open awareness, looking at awareness itself. These practices tend to gather the mind into the present moment. And in that moment, it's not as easy to get obsessed with thought. And it even persists off the cushion um, because the state that we're in on the cushion does carry through our day, especially if we sit regularly, we'll find that there's a, a habituation over time to a mind that's a little bit more stable because of that uh, repetition. So this is why the Vasudhimaga says that shamatha practice is what starts to undermine um, obsession. It starts to undermine that tendency of the mind. However, um, as I hinted at the beginning, this doesn't actually completely uproot those underlying tendencies to craving, conceit, and views, or Surimaga talks about the seven um, anusaya, the underlying tendencies. Uh, only insight can do that, actually. Nonetheless, I recommend practicing shamatha. <laughs> I recommend practicing the calm abiding. It's very, very good for many, many things. And so you know, don't say, oh, well, it's only insight that works to really completely uproot things. That's all I'm gonna practice. Please practice calm abiding also. But let's look um, more carefully at these roots, the craving, conceit, and views. Um, in particular, I wanna point out that they are inherently unsteady. So uh, MN144 says, in one attached, there is wavering. In one unattached, there is no wavering. This might sound a little bit counterintuitive at first because we generally associate stability with having a firm standpoint. Right? Think about that. If you're gonna be stable, it's because you're standing on solid ground. You're standing on the earth. Um, and there are other, but there are other suttas that point out that awakened people don't even take up any views at all. They don't have any, not even spiritual views. There are some very radical suttas that say fully awakened people let go of Buddhism. <laughs> they let go of um, holding on to their own spiritual tradition. So, you know, that doesn't mean that you throw it all out and go to a party every day, but, you know, it means that you don't take it as the foundation of your standpoint. So they don't have fixed standpoints at all, totally awakened people. How does that mean that there's no wavering? <laughs> but this is just our intuition. We think that stability means that there's a standpoint. But remember the teaching on impermanence, which says that all conditions are unstable. All the conditions that make things up 
are themselves unstable. That's why objects are impermanent and inconstant, is that the conditions that support them are also impermanent and inconstant. So how could they be stable? The very conditions are changing, falling away, and always in need of bolstering to keep things up. You've noticed this in meditation where it takes some effort to keep mindfulness up. Mindfulness is falling away because the conditions for it are not stable. So it's counterintuitive. The only truly stable standpoint is not to have a standpoint. But don't worry if that sounds too counterintuitive. We understand it in steps. At the beginning of practice, we tend to think that things are reliable. Um, we've been thinking our whole life that the things we're relying on are reliable. Our job, our health, our status, our um, relationships, our views and opinions. Those are the things that make up what we think is stable and important during the first part of our life before we get to practice. Many people come to practice because they discover that those things are not as stable as they thought. A lot of people come because somebody close to them dies, for example, and they are completely taken by surprise by this and torn apart by it. Or they come because their health has changed suddenly. Or they come because their life falls apart, their job doesn't work, they get divorced, all kinds of things fall away, and they realize none of this was stable. So there's a lot of suffering that comes from that because we didn't know that. And so um, these things can just go away. For one attached, there's wavering. For one attached, things are unstable. Um, so then the first step is that we find something more reliable. You know, that doesn't mean, that's not the time to tell somebody, well, you should just never rely on anything again. No, you find something more reliable. And what's more reliable are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So we start with the refuges. We find a practice. We find a community. We find a teacher. Um, we discover that this refuge is much more stable and reliable. And you can keep using it for a very long time. I recommend it. Um, and you can notice also that the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha have a lot less to do with wanting, with ourself, and with our views and opinions than what we had before, at least. Nonetheless, these things can persist. Um, people certainly get attached to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, and we can still make a self out of it and so forth, but it's a lot, it's a lot lesser level. If we really take in the refuge of Buddha Dharma Sangha, we will naturally begin to be less concerned with our self, we'll be more um, settled in our mind and body, we'll be more connected with others. So many good things come out of the refuges. So um, that's what I recommend as the beginning of finding something that is a more reliable, something with less wavering than um, our usual attachments. Later, maybe, we can think about the ultimate strength of, of non-attachment, of non having no conceptual foundation. So to one attached, one unattached, there is no wavering. So fully awakened people like the Buddha are completely grounded in the present moment and they have no attachment to all these things that are changing. They don't rely on anything. The greatest stand, strength is not to take a stand on anything. But this is worth reflecting on, um, but it's also fine with being okay in terms of where we are. So knowing that things are 
inherently unstable and the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are the path. You know, they're what we rely on while we walk the path. So I want to circle back now to the practical realm. What is it? How can we practice in everyday life, not getting caught up in these obsessions, which are inherently unstable, which cause wavering, um, bring about wavering when we try to rely on them. So I have some um, practices that I think I have found particularly useful. One of them is an acronym, WAIT, W-A-I-T. This stands for, why am I talking? So we can discover, (laughs) it's a good one because it's also kind of humorous, right? Why am I talking? So one thing that we'll discover if we practice with why am I talking is that we'll discover the view that we're intending to express, if there is one. Not every verbal expression has a view associated with it. But often we don't have a clear idea that what we're really doing is getting our view across. And so if you practice, why am I talking, you'll discover um, that there's usually something we're trying to get across. And it might be fine and appropriate to express our view at that moment and go ahead if if it is. Um, But if it's not necessary, it can be useful to um, try not expressing that view or try expressing a different one just for fun. Um, you know, so this helps in a, in a gentle and somewhat fun way, reduce our tendency to often give our opinion about things. Um, and so you don't have to worry about how other people will give their opinions about things. Just work on yourself and make sure you know why you're talking. I saw a little note about why am I texting? Yes. So um, that's also the case. Texts go by pretty fast. So we just shoot a reply back. Maybe you don't need to, or maybe you might check why, why am I doing that or what? And could you express something different? Maybe something having to do with metta or something having to do with wisdom, you know, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Okay, so then another thing we can do, um, this is kind of a bouquet I'm giving of different practices. So another one we can do is on the computer because that's another area where we really get obsessed and we get drawn in. Screen is a whole world that we can get sucked into. So that last practice that we did in the meditation where we had a broad awareness, like sort of like the sky, you can do this while you're looking at the computer screen. It helps a lot. So for example, right now, if you're looking, if you happen to be looking at the screen, um, see if you can broaden your awareness and just see the wall or whatever it is that's behind your computer around the screen as well as the screen. So the screen is something a little bit, it's like a square in the middle of something that's a bigger awareness. Just see if you can um, rest your mind with that for a moment. Maybe you can. And can you remember to do this periodically while you're working on the computer? Just back off, look at the wall behind the computer. Look at the things on either side of the screen and then turn back to the screen as just one part of your awareness. It's very effective. Um, You can even set a timer if you want to broaden your awareness every certain number of minutes or hours. Um, Another interesting practice is to try a conversation with someone 
where instead of getting totally sucked into either looking at them or um, totally drawn into the content of what you're talking about, to have to notice the space between you and the other person. So this is another space related one. So um, like, for example, I'm looking at the screen right now, I can see some of your images, but with just a little shift of my attention, I can also see, I can see the space that's between us. It's not quite real because you're not the right size, but nonetheless, um, you're not real life size, but nonetheless, even in real life, you can focus on the space that it's between you and somebody. Um, at first, you might need to practice a little bit so that you don't totally lose the thread of the conversation while you're doing that. But with practice, you can see the space around and between you and the other person. This helps a lot with being mindful while speaking. If you've ever had trouble with mindfulness of speech, this is one technique. And there's kind of, I have a story about it, actually, which is that um, Venerable Analio was one time, um, he's a monk, he was one time practicing, living and practicing in Sri Lanka. And some of the work that he was doing was um, a little bit controversial. Uh, he was doing some uh, academic work that was irritating to some people. And in particular, it was irritating to somebody else at his monastery. And this person came and one day and uh, ranted at him, like he came into his kuti and said, I wanna talk about this thing that you've been writing. And he went off on a long tirade about how he didn't agree with it. And Venerable Nalio had been practicing with space meditation, with noticing space just before that. And so he just focused on the space between him and this person who had come to rail at him. And he found that it was so easeful. He just sat there equanimously. He heard what the guy was saying, but it, by focusing on the space, he didn't have any particular reaction. And eventually the person just kind of blew out his energy <laughs> and he, you know, he wasn't getting any particular response. And so he blew out his energy and eventually left and the conversation was over. So it worked quite effectively. I mean, you may need to respond and something that you're talking about with someone, but nonetheless, this is a technique for um, being less drawn into and obsessed with what's going on to the degree where, remember what that sutta said, is there anything that could so obsess my mind that I could not um, know things as they really were, could not know that I was in a conversation with someone sitting in a room with them. So yeah, that's a, a useful technique. And then, um, Maybe remembering from time to time, if it's inspirational, this idea of inner strength, which I think is a lot of what we're cultivating in practice, is that um, we can be strong enough. It's, it's about being strong enough not to get drawn into arguments, for instance, and that this is somehow a mark of strength and, and a, in a positive way, you know, a positive kind of strength that gives us a stability in the world that is something that can even be helpful for others. If we're standing still and stable and not getting drawn in or obsessed by things, we actually help other people not to get as obsessed. They may still do it, but it, there's something in the energy that we transmit when we're not drawn in that helps everybody else too. I remember Thich Nhat Hanh saying that um, when people were, you know, when the people from Vietnam were coming in, in boats, that there would be maybe 16, 18 people on a little boat and they would sometimes get into rough weather. And if one person on the boat 
was strong and was saying, it's okay, everybody just stay still. Don't get upset that the boat is rocking. Um, that could save the whole boat, just having one person able to do that. So it has sometimes very practical effects, but it also works in conversations or in other situations. So this is important practice um, to not allow the mind to get obsessed. There's a, a sutta from the Sutta Nipata where somebody comes and um, asks a question of the Buddha and he says, I ask you, O kinsman of the sun, great seer, about seclusion and the state of peace. By seeing what is a monastic freed, not clinging to anything in the world. And the Buddha says, let them completely destroy the root of papancha. That's, and then it goes on, but that's his first response is that if you want to be free, you would completely destroy the root of papancha. And so this is pointing toward the state of an arahant or a Buddha is said to be nipapancha. That's actually one of the descriptions of the mind of a Buddha is that it is nipapancha. Ni is the negation. So non-papancha, there's no papancha in the mind of an arahant or a Buddha, no obsession. But if that sounds like a high bar, luckily, long before we completely destroy the root of papancha, we can have partial freedom through this kind of strength of mind that I've been talking about. So I want to return now to where we started, to MN48, which was the sutta about being a good community member. And remember that the quote was about a person assessing whether or not it's possible for their mind to get obsessed. And you say, you know, is there any obsession that could so obsess my mind that I did not know things as they truly are? And so the sutta goes on very optimistically and says, the practitioner understands thus, there is no obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know and see things as they are. My mind is well disposed for awakening to the truth. So a mind, anytime your mind is not very obsessed, is a time when you could potentially awaken. So awaken into this moment, awaken into an insight you hadn't had before, or who knows, awaken completely. But anytime the mind is not obsessed is a time when it is well disposed for seeing clearly, seeing something important. So this is deep work. First of all, I understand this is a high bar to eliminate this in the mind. So don't think in those terms. Think instead in terms of the accessibility of being partially free, having a mind that uh, could get drawn into these things, still has the hindrances, still has speculation, still has concerns about things, but at least some of the time we can see that. And so um, we're at that moment temporarily free from it. I think this unfolds for a long time in our practice, this um, uh, ongoing relationship with papancha and with occasional times of nipapancha, not being caught up. And it's a beautiful area of practice, um, brings more and more peace. It's pretty direct, pretty directly brings peace um, at the times that we're, that we're not obsessed. And it contributes to the peace of the world. Uh, we'll be a better community member and we won't be contributing to the agitation of the world. 
So thank you. These are my thoughts on this topic. And I welcome now any questions or comments, discussion. Anita. Yeah, Kim, how does, where does planning fit with craving conceit views? And where does anxiety fit? Hmm. Well, planning, those are quite different in my mind. Um, planning is something that is um, potentially necessary. There are certainly times when it would be good to plan if we're, you know, going on a long trip. You would it would be very wise to figure out where you're going to stay along the way. It would be very wise to get gas ahead of time, you know, things like that. Pack some food, water, think about if you need sunscreen, what clothes. So, you know, there's um, planning that works. But while we're doing all of that, we could know that we're planning. You know, we could, W-A-I-P, why am I planning? <laughs> so, you know, I'm planning because I want my trip to be easeful and I want um, the people I'm with to be comfortable. So I'm going to remember to pack snacks for all of us. So there's all kinds of good ways that we can plan if we know that's what we're doing and we have a good intention. Of course, there's also, I understand a little bit, you know, you might have been pointing at obsessive planning, which we also do where, you know, we sit on the cushion and we have to plan the next five meals that we're cooking, even though we don't really need to do that because we have plenty of food in the fridge. Um, oh, or planning the same meal over and over and over. Yes, yeah, so planning on the 30th time, you realize that you probably could have planned it only five times and that would have been enough. So yes, it's true. And if, and you already identified that part of that obsessive planning comes from anxiety often. If we, if we find that there's a lot of obsessive thinking happening, one strategy that I, I didn't get to go over today since the focus was on meditation, but one strategy we can do in daily life, um, I can add that on to the, the bouquet from earlier, is that we can look if there's a certain emotion present that's fueling that kind of um, particular thought train that we're having. Sometimes there's an unseen anxiety or fear of some kind um, that is uh, generating all of those thoughts. And if we address the underlying emotion, thoughts will be less obsessive, less intense. So that's, again, just a matter of awareness of being able to see that that's what's going on. And it doesn't need to end completely. That's one more theme I can pass along from today. It's that the, it's good enough to be partially free. As long as we are not so obsessed that we can't see that that's what's going on, we're already free in a sense. It's not that pleasant to know that the mind is sort of going uh, uh, and wanting to, but if, if we're kind of holding on to it the way when our dog is, you know, really interested in going after something and we're holding on to the leash, uh, it, you know, where there's the tension of the leash, but the dog isn't, isn't running away. It isn't, hasn't pulled out of our hand and dashed off across the street. So we can do that with the mind also. Does that help a little bit? Yes. Okay. I, Kim, I was going to just jump on that one as well. This is Chris, because yeah. I had the same question. And my, my go-to when I'm meditating, when I go on to um, obsessive thinking, or not even obsessive, just often the thought, is often planning. 
like what I'm going to do after this, you know, what I'm going to have for dinner, you know, what I have to do today, you know, yep. some small group, we do teachings and, you know, so I, I'm hearing what you're saying and I immediately want to bring that into the next thing I'm doing rather than the thing. I'm, anyway, I was wondering maybe if, if like for me, a lot of times, maybe that fits into the, the area of conceit. It's like, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to bring the right information? Am I going to be perceived well? Am I prepared enough? Will I be okay? So I'm thinking right. maybe that area. Yeah, that's a that's a common one for planning is that we want to be competent, right? We want to be competent essentially as as people. And even if somebody else isn't going to see us, like if we're just what we're making for ourselves for dinner, we still want to do it. Um, uh, we still want to get it right. <laughs> you know, somehow we want it to go well. So there is some conceit there. And there's also some wanting there, usually a wanting of things to go smoothly, wanting of that to unfold. Also, a lot of it is just habitual because we've lived our life, say, if we're working, we have to get this done and then this done and then that, and we have to finish this by the end of the day, and we have to remember to do that for our boss tomorrow, etc. And so we've just trained our mind to always be thinking about the next thing, the next thing. It's, it's just habit. And so um, a lot of that is just momentum. And so when we sit down, there's a, a need to unplug from that ongoing momentum. Yeah, and so the practices we worked on of staying with the breath, of uh, feeling the ease of being in the present moment, that can start to wean the mind off of its continual interest in going forward because it's not as pleasant actually as being in the present. Yeah, good point. Sandy. Um, then my, question, my question was about the relationship of this to creative work and so i'm thinking of a contrast between someone who's say a painter and when they are working they are painting versus someone whose creative work is intellectual in nature which means by definition there there there's a lot of thought involved in what they're doing and so how do you distinguish that from papancha well, thought that is um, related to, um, to our work, if it's intellectual, say, if we're aware that in that moment um, we are thinking about our work without taking too much energy away from that, um, you know, it, it can still, it's not that thought is wrong, thought the mind thinks all the time. It's just a matter of keeping the thought light and also not mixing it in with these other aspects that we talked about. So if there's a lot of conceit around what we're thinking or a lot of wanting um, or a lot of, or some, one of the hindrances, you know, we're thinking about this because we're trying to figure out how to crush our rival in the other university. And we finally found that, uh, we finally found the reason why his argument is wrong, <laughs> you know? And, you know, there can be, yeah, so yeah, just being aware of our motivations and doing that. Um, can start to help help work with the natural need to think. Um, even someone who's creative and doing something physical like painting, um, there is still an engagement of the of the mind. It's not necessarily the cognitive part of the mind that's intellectual and rational, but it is still um, it is still the mind. It's still the conceptual mind, even. Um, to bring forth images and ideas and represent them there. It's a different form, but 
Um, I wouldn't say that it's fundamentally different from intellectual work. In terms of Buddhism, let me say. Yeah. So uh, and there's a lot of conceit in uh, art, actually, <laughs> in you're creating your thing and um, your self projected onto that painting in some ways. Not that all of it's like that, but there can be a lot of that. Um, so it always comes down to you know, the, um, the relationship to it. Yeah, Heidi. I, I loved why in my talking, that's that's going to be, I'm going to work with that a lot. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, could you say a bit more about what shamatha is and the difference between shamatha and vipassana? Yeah, so I did kind of throw out those terms um, fairly casually. Uh, shamatha means uh, calm um, or tranquility. It's the side of meditation that's about gathering the mind around a theme. Um, sometimes called you know, sometimes called samadhi or concentration, but I try not to use that word. And it contrasts with vipassana, which is a which is about the seeing. So that's about insight practice, or trying has the wisdom side to it of trying to see how it is that things happen, what causes what. Um, things are impermanent. Things are not self. These these kinds of um, understandings being brought to our experience as opposed to simply settling the mind from its tendency to be scattered and not particularly organized and oriented. So um, Buddhism says that you, you actually need both of them, is that, that we have to somehow calm and gather the mind and then we have to see something. Um, now there are paths that are so-called dry insight where you only do vipassana practice but they will inevitably um, bring the mind into the very present moment of really being with the changing experience that's happening. So it still has a kind of gathering of the mind in it. You don't get away with not having one or the other. Or if you only do shamatha practice, you'll, you'll never gain wisdom. You know, there are people who do, before the time of the Buddha, there were people who only did jhana practice and they got very, very high attainments of, amazing um, immaterial states in the mind, but they had no wisdom particularly because they didn't do anything with those things. And after they got off the cushion, then all their defilements came back. So um, just that gives a broader context is that we generally want to calm and gather the mind. That's the shamatha. And then we want to see clearly and understand what's happening. That's the vipassana. Does that help? Okay. Kim, can I jump in there? Or are yes, we raising please, Michael. Hands? Okay. Hmm? Yeah, are we ahead. raising hands? Oh, um, people are doing either. So I, I saw you there. So go ahead. Okay. So the difference between Samatha and uh, Anapana, can you share with us what the difference between those well, two? I think you're referring to Anapanasati, which is yeah. mindfulness of breathing. And that can be done um, in a number of different ways. It can be done as only a concentration practice uh, if one undertakes it in a certain way, 
or it can be undertaken as something that develops both shamatha and vipassana um, if one undertakes it in a different way. So that is actually a mindfulness practice, which can end up going in either category, depending how you do it. Did you have something more specific about that? So I would say mindfulness is different from concentration and vipassana. Those are now three different terms that have been brought in. Well, when I go to a vipassana center, uh, Goenkaji uh, uses the term anapana for concentration of the breath, on the breath. So, Yeah, he in his technique, he uses it mostly as a concentration practice. That's also what's done in the Vasudhi Maga form of the, the commentarial form of uh, breath meditation. But the 16 steps that are in MN118 in the Pali Canon, those will cultivate both concentration and clear seeing. So those, that one spans both of them. So it really depends how you do it. Um, if the breath is the object and the mindfulness is the method and you can end up with either calm or um, calm and be possible. Yeah, all this terminology is, you know, something that we keep working with and keep refining over time. Okay, Brian. Tim, you were talking about, and I'll probably get the wording wrong, but sort of broadening your awareness when speaking with somebody. Broadening the awareness. Focusing on the space. Uh-huh, like yeah, yeah. What would you say, if you say more about what the point of that would be? Oh, the point of it is so that we don't get um, completely caught up in the content of what we're speaking about with the other person. Uh, different people obsess about different things in conversation. Some people get drawn into the person and they really look at them and get drawn into that. Some people get completely drawn into uh, the topic of conversation. But it's often, uh, I often notice that when I'm with another person, that's a fairly strong presence in my consciousness is to have another person there. And so it's less easy to be mindful in such situations. And so including the space around, which is more neutral and is also you know, something different than that one person, helps the mind to stay more present, less obsessed, um, more free and able to make choices about what to say next, also able to see and anticipate what would be wise instead of just following along with what the other person is trying to get us to say or do. Often conversations are a little manipulative. You know, somebody's trying to get us to react. They're trying to get us to support them. They're trying to get us to see something their way. Um, we're not, we're not, we're, we're feeding on each other in certain ways. And so there's, this isn't wrong necessarily, it's how we connect, but to have some freedom around that does a lot for improving the wholesomeness of our interaction and our own mind and heart. And it's better for the other person also. So it's a good question, thank you. Okay, so um, I think we should move toward ending then in order to honor your time. And, um, so why don't we just take a moment to um, come back into our own mind and body to maybe take a deep breath and feel again where we're sitting. And remember that we've done a lovely afternoon of dedicated practice together. 
And it was a time of meditation, a time of learning, of inquiry into our experience, and being Sangha, strengthening our refuge, our path, that which is more reliable than our initial unreliable way of being as we move toward a mind that's free. So we can wish that our practice today is for the benefit of others. It will benefit the people that we live with, it will benefit our communities, and even spread out into society as we become stronger in our inner strength. We're able to hold with wisdom and compassion the difficulties of others and of the world. So may it be that our practice comes to benefit all beings so that all beings may be happy, all beings may be peaceful, and all beings everywhere may find freedom. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.